This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is the 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, a stylish diary filled with radical historical dates from across the world. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary is a beautifully designed week-to-view planner where you can keep track of the year ahead. Alongside illustrations and book excerpts, it features significant radical dates from throughout history, including the English Civil War and Black Panther movement, through to the protests of 1968 and feminist emancipation, touching on the lives of revolutionaries such as Angela Davis, Rosa Luxemburg, and Martin Luther King Jr. The 2019 edition includes illustrations from Savage Messiah, Laura Oldfield Ford's brilliant psychogeographic graphic novel, as well as extracts from brand new Verso books, including Revolting Prostitutes, New Dark Age, and Paradise Rot. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, out now from none other than Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm recording this introduction in Montreal, but recorded the interview that will follow, as usual, in Providence, Rhode Island. Recently, we have talked a lot about identity politics on this show. We've critiqued liberal identity politics, and then we've also made the case that while liberal identity politics are reactionary, Racism and patriarchy are still central to the operation of capitalism. Today, we are addressing one of the most obnoxious corners of the identity politics debate, one that we haven't looked at yet. And that is the corner occupied by right liberals who believe that any desire to change the world is a divisive symptom of maladjusted affluenza emanating from pampered college students. My guest today is Moira Weigel who, in a recent book review published in The Guardian, takes on two men who are the terrifying equivalent of your therapist suddenly transmorgified into Mark Lilla. Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt are the authors of the oh-so-cleverly-titled The Coddling of the American Mind, a book that makes its case by way of pragmatic folk aphorisms like prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. As Weigel writes, The prospect that a group of children might get together to build a new road themselves is not one they can countenance. Before we get rolling, this podcast is only possible because you, our listeners, support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We love doing this, but we quite literally need your money to make it happen. Plus, $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of left-wing books. So, if you listen to the show and like this show, please hit pause now and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. It'll only take a minute or so. Okay, here's Moira Weigel a writer and scholar currently at the Harvard Society of Fellows and a founding editor of Logic Magazine. (laughs) 
Moira Weigel, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. The Coddling of the American Mind, a book that you reviewed for The Guardian at some length, is about the crisis in American higher education, but it somehow fails to mention either student debt or the casualization of academic labor. What is this book about? So the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, sort of ranges over a lot of different territory. So in a way, it's difficult to summarize pithily. But the core thing that it is, it is an expansion of an article that Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff wrote in 2015 for The Atlantic. The core arguments of the book are that something has gone wrong in American universities that all the various problems that they talk about revolve around what they call the culture of safetyism, uh, the sort of desire of students to be, quote unquote, protected from points of view they disagree with, and these these beliefs that they call the great untruths, which they attribute to sort of unnamed sort of leftist professors, uh, very, you know, and who are personified by different people in the book, but it's usually very vaguely imputed to to leftists, uh, uh, starting with this made-up oracle that they supposedly visit in Greece, and then they tell us they didn't visit that oracle. Um, but anyway, the three untruths are called the untruth of fragility, the untruth of emotional reasoning, and the untruth of us versus them. So the book is sort of this. These are untruths um, ostensibly propagated by leftist professors. Yeah, the court. So again, and they're so, but they're so pervasive. They're so pervasive yet they can't cite an actual professor who who makes these arguments in their academic work or something. It's funny because it's extremely telling. It's funny because the book opens with this strange, like, several-page reverie where they describe going to Mount Olympus to meet this oracle. He's called (laughs) Misoponos. If you speak a little ancient Greek, which I do, you're like, huh, that means lazy, like weird name for an oracle. Uh, he serves the god Koalemos, who's an obscure god of stupidity, comes up in Aristophanes. <laughs> anyway, and they go on this, and then in this bizarre moment, they say he's sitting in a 70s lazy boy chair and has a Long Island accent. Uh, so you start to, even if you don't know a bit of Greek, uh, you know, clue into what's up. But then uh, they say that this this Oracle Misoponos promulgates these great untruths. And then after they do the bait and switch and say, you know, oh, no, just kidding. We didn't write it because of that. We wrote it because a lot of people read our Atlantic piece. Um, they, uh, they then basically attribute this safetyism, these untruths, this culture of needing protection, both to professors and to their students. And I would be misspeaking if I said they didn't cite any professors. They do cite various episodes from the campus wars of the past couple of years. Uh, but it seems to me that the entire the entire debate is constructed in such a way that one can't really respond to them because they're characterizing an argument that's not re- you know they're they're quoting the most extreme examples of students asking for safe spaces or asking for protection and then saying that this is an expression of a kind of cultural vulnerability that they've been taught by their parents and their schools uh, and that the right way to deal with the discomfort or unhappiness or frustrations caused by systemic disadvantages to kind of toughen it up and assume that other people have the best intentions. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's a very broad, you know, as the title suggests, it sort of sets out to be this broad civilizational cultural diagnosis 
Uh, it's clearly echoing Alan Bloom, Closing of the American Mind. And the core of what they're talking about is this idea that students are learning fragility and learning to say they need protection when really they don't. And kids and college students are anti-fragile uh, and should be treated as such. For them, the proverbial Oberlin students protesting bad sushi as racist cultural appropriation comes to stand in for all campus politics. Yeah, I think it was Bon Me, Dan. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, no one wants shitty Bon Me, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's really, we can debate that another time. Uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. I was rereading Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind uh, after reading this book for the first time in preparation for the review. And early on in that book, uh, which, you know, I would argue with and disagree with in all kinds of ways, there's this moment where Alan Bloom says, I'm only concerned when I talk about American college students, I'm talking about students at the top 20 or so universities uh, who are free from material concerns. That's who matters for my argument. And again, we could dispute whether or not that's fair or whether that is a, a good uh, data set to use the parlance of, of this kind of crowd to take. But he's at least being explicit about that methodology. I think one of the sort of strangest and most frustrating things about this book to me is that it similarly seems to be interested only in very privileged students at elite colleges, and yet not to make that explicit, to want to extrapolate from the, you know, the Bon Me affair at Oberlin uh, to, to talk about American culture as a whole. And they sort of draw these big links often in these sentences that list things all in a row saying this is bad for students, which is also bad for our media and our politics and our democracy, as if there was a clear link between uh, a couple of kids at Middlebury who don't want Charles Murray to speak there uh, and what's happening in our political culture at large. And as if the the question of, of Bon Me is equivalent to the question of police brutality or curriculum or a open eugenicist like Charles Murray being given a platform on a smaller arts campus. I mean, these are all very, these these are different things. A lot of things are treated as as sort of interchangeable or as examples of this syndrome of safetyism. I mean, it's always funny to me because I feel as if this kind of attack on the left or on liberals in some contexts so often accuses leftists and liberals of inventing speech codes and, you know, rules about who can speak how, but the book is sort of full of these neologisms uh, or terms like safetyism or the great untruth, uh, which feel like a, a sort of speech code or jargon of its own. Well, these these two are clearly so burdened by having to be conscious of people's preferred pronouns that they have to <laughs> come up with a much larger lexicon themselves. Speaking of which, the their, their style and the liberal style that they epitomize, you, you write is all about this this reasonableness contrasted mm-hmm. against an overly emotional left, which which reminds me a lot of, of Ben Shapiro's insistence that his facts don't care about your feelings or right. Milo's framing of his utterly obscenely mean arguments as principally a matter of free speech or right. or Steven Crowder setting up a table that says male privilege is a myth, changed my mind. This whole idea of like, listen, we're just trying to have a reasonable conversation here. Um, it's right. not my fault if my if my facts uh, right. send you into a meltdown. How, how does the veneration of, of a certain mode of thinking 
or talking function politically for these authors in a way that they probably neither acknowledge nor recognize? It's really interesting because I think, and there's like so much to say about that. It's a great question. I feel like it operates a little bit differently uh, across these different writers you named, even though it's sort of like all on a continuum. But I think that two things that come to my mind listening to you talk about it are one, that emotion is so gendered and racialized, uh, whether or not explicitly. You know, there's this idea that, and I think about, there's a new book coming out from Harvard University Press about this soon that I just read about the uh, the red pill community's obsession with the Stoics. Um, but there's this idea of like a rational white masculinity, which does not have feelings, which is funny because they're so full of feelings and fragility once you scratch the surface. But there's this sort of implicitly... Um, white masculinist identity that's tied to to performing reason in this way, I think, in a lot of cases. But the thing that really strikes me is the sort of, how to put it, if we say that having emotion about certain topics precludes, or that having emotion precludes, or expressing oneself emotionally precludes reasonable, rational participation in debate, that if you are emotional, you are not fit to participate in debate, that's going to mean that on topics like rape or lynching, uh, you know, or eugenics, uh, that debate may be restricted to people who are able not to feel emotional about those topics. Uh, to the kinds of people who, for whom, you know, in the case of Milo, it's, I always think, you know, who has the benefit of sticking around to figure out if the rape joke was a joke, you know, uh, that there's a way in which, and again, I should say, I think it functions differently with someone like Milo than it does with, say, like Steve Pinker or Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, but that these tone policing, sort of these these discursive policing mechanisms ultimately serve to either restrict you know, who can who restrict you can participate in debate on the basis of identity or put a very high burden in some cases of a certain kind of risk uh, on the people who who cannot assume that you know, not necessarily risk uh, let's see uh, take on the risk of assuming that the lynching joke was just a joke or the rape joke was just a joke. Come on, calm down. And the other last thing I'd say about this sort of rhetorical game is that it does this thing where it makes the other into the problem. You know, it sort of reaffirms uh, the man who tells a sexist joke, putting, you know, for instance, me, as happened a while ago at a thing I was at at Harvard, putting me in the position of saying that was really sexist and inappropriate, and then says, gosh, why are you getting so upset? It was just a joke. Reaffirms this thing that was already assumed, which is that it is the woman, it is the person of color, uh, the disabled person, like whoever can't take it as a joke, they're the problem. And so it becomes this way of sort of affirming a homogenous community without having to make explicit that that is what the speaker is doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that there'd been an equilibrium of sorts prior to the woman or the person of color's intervention into the situation. Totally. And that that can be assumed. There's something very anti-political about that. And I feel like that's in a way, you know, the Trumpist thing of saying something insanely racist. And then people say, how can you say something so racist? He says, that's just common sense. It sort of affirms the community of people uh, who can be presumed to share this opinion. Yeah, I think I have the phrase unmarked norm uh, a few times (laughs) in my notes here. Totally. You cite a really surreal example of these two authors, Lukianoff and hate modeling this sort of Spock-like dis- aff- affect when they're writing about the 
2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville mm-hmm. where Heather Hare <laughs> was killed. And they write, levels of fear and anger were understandably elevated. <laughs> Members of some identity groups surely face more frequent insults to their dignity than do straight white males. Right. Right. It's funny because that latter quote comes from a passage where they're talking about dignity culture and why it's better than shame culture. But they often they often have. And it's funny, you know, I had the review is already very long, but there was a long store of things that had to get cut from the review um, because the book is, you know, 300 and some pages. But uh, they love these adverbs, right? It's their way of signaling that they're it's like the, the first sentence of the last paragraph of your SAT essay where you're like, I have thought of the other side already. Do not accuse me of not having thought of the other side, but they do that constantly. To be uh, sure. Sort of at the level of pro style, to be sure. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's this performance of reasonableness. There's a chapter where they rehearse Jean Twenge's argument from her book, iGen, that, you know, it's smartphones that are making young people so anxious and unhappy, uh, which, you know, the data on that is sort of out. The sort of most recent social science on that, it's very disputed in what ways, you know, cell phones or smartphones are affecting young people's mental health. And they themselves allow that at the end of their chapter. They say, you know, in fact, the data is highly inconclusive, but to be sure, it is complicated. And it's like this, <laughs> I mean, it's really amazing. I was going to dig up the quote from the book, but it's this performance, it's sort of a rhetoric of reasonableness, a rhetoric of, look, we have weighed all sides, and we know, we know that people of color and women get insulted more often than men. But nonetheless, um, there's an incredible part, which they quote in the review also, but where they're comparing campuses now to the cultural revolution (laughs) in China. And they say, you know, to be sure, there are some differences. Like, you know, there's no authoritarian dictator, totalitarian dictator commanding them, and they're nonviolent. Still, nonetheless, it's similar. And it's like, those are big differences, guys. Yeah, it's similar because (laughs) it's like activist college students, though in the cultural revolution, I think they were they were murdering people <laughs> as well. I know, I know. It's like Marx and uh, Marx and I don't know Hitler. I hate to bring up Hitler. It's like my, you know, these people were the same because they both had mustaches. To be sure, they were different, <laughs> but it's just and they both had a theory. They both had theories form. of the state. There you go. That they have too. That they have too. <laughs> this whole sort of stoic disposition that they want their readers and youth in general to inculcate is is all tied in with this this argument that they're making and this really surprised me when you revealed that this is what the book was really about is that it's really about cognitive behavioral therapy you write that in their view quote student demands for social justice are expressions of cognitive distortions that cbt can correct and that student problems And that the problems that young people and their parents worry about are not as grave as they think. So for them, student activism is this problem for the worried well, which is them, as we discussed earlier, substituting a very narrow subset of students for students as a whole, um, regardless Mm -hmm. of the merit of their argument. Um, The subject of it they take to be – they they like to take particular subjects and make them universal ones, it seems. And then their solution Mm – Right is for young people to adapt themselves to things as they are, because mm-hmm. if they want to change, let alone transform the world, then there must be something very wrong with them that needs to be psychologically fixed. 
explain how this civilizational critique they're making slips into self-help. So Greg Lukianoff, one of the two authors, talks early on in the book, I believe it's early in the book that he describes this, about having, sorry, let me just look, yes, he talks about it at the very beginning of the book, uh, talks about having suffered from severe depression and indeed having had suicidal, suicidal ideation at some point in his life and how cognitive behavioral therapy saved him. Uh, and then the sort of opening gambit of the book, which was sort of the the core argument of their Viral Atlantic article, too, is that a lot, and actually I should just quote, he says that student reactions to speech on college campuses exhibited exactly the same distortions that Greg had learned to rebut in his therapy. So there's this idea that the kinds of concerns, objections that students on college campuses are raising somehow mirror the cognitive distortions that cognitive behavioral therapy can treat and fix. I feel like... In CBT speak, this is like black and white thinking, catastrophizing. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's, I think it's interesting because I feel as if there are like so many things that feel very problematic to me about the series of leaps that, <laughs> that you were touching on in your summary. But uh, I think the really core thing is also that they see... They see what students care about purely, they see speech in this sort of idealized, totally dematerialized way, uh, you know, as if it was, as if, for instance, like, I don't know, as if, as if concerns about having eugenicists speak at your campus were not related to broader concerns about social justice uh, and protection from police brutality. Uh, you know, I mean, I think there's this way in which they frame things such that the problems that are being described, the problems that student activists care about, are simply questions of speech. You know, why can't they just hear the other side? We're just asking questions here, that kind of thing. Uh, and then they're able to apply this cognitive behavioral therapy technique, which feels so often like it's a sort of recommendation to gaslight yourself. Um, there's a, anyway, I could go on and on about it, but does, does that make sense? It's sort of like by framing everything as a speech problem, they're then able to adopt a, adopt this approach that says, you know, what's going to hurt, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones. You know, what's, what's so harmful about hearing this speech? And it's totally divorced from an understanding of how, you know, concern with discourse is tied to concern about power. To be sure, it is not a materialist analysis of the role of academia in society. <laughs> <Surely> not. <laughs> There's both a tendency to pathologize legitimate unhappiness or frustration with social and political reality. Um, and then also, I think about the whole history of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is not my area of expertise, but the ways in which it sort of comes into vogue and evolves in an era of, you know, healthcare cuts, lack of mental health coverage. It's this idea that, like, you know, oh, you can't afford to go see a shrink five times a week, and that won't fix you. It takes too long. Here are, like, ten things you can do to feel less miserable. <laughs> I always think uh, of a friend had this story about seeing her therapist and the therapist encouraging her to do something. Um, and her saying, no, you're just trying to make me accommodate myself to patriarchy, like getting kind of angry. <laughs> and the therapist saying, well, do you want to feel better? <laughs> and I feel like... <laughs> the therapist is like, is well, maybe, duality. but... <laughs> Which also, I mean, I should say, I'd like to be a teeny bit charitable. Like, it may not be unhelpful to have, if you're a student of color, if you're a first-generation college student, a working-class student at one of these elite campuses and you show up and realize that in many ways the institution is not ready for you, that there are 
these systems of oppression that are not there for you, even if you're a relatively privileged white woman like me, you eventually realize this. Uh, it may be helpful to have certain like techniques for managing managing your anxiety and your anger and your feelings about that. But I feel as if where it becomes, it starts to feel sort of ideological, is when it becomes a program for accommodating yourself to things as they are and saying, you know, any any desire you have for the world to be otherwise or for perhaps your perception to count as much, at least, if not more than, you know, this this person's this person's perception of their intentions who just offended you by saying an offensive thing. Um that I lost track of my very long sentence, but it's like it becomes it pathologizes a desire for social change and um and becomes a way of affirming the status quo and telling people that you have to accommodate yourself to the status quo or be pathologized. Uh, and in a way, I think that's what's so problematic about the mismatch between the sort of self-help element of the book and uh, and the, the framing of it as some kind of grand diagnosis of the state of civilization. You argue that the, this book represents a convergence of sorts between right liberals like these guys and Mark Lilla on the one hand and John Shade and many others and and the more alt-right or alt-light people like Jordan Peterson and the red pill people that I know you know a lot more about than I mm-hmm. C- can you explain the various points at which they they meet and where where they diverge one one central commonality seems to be that they all seem very personally injured by the bad rap that white men are getting these days in certain circles. It's ironic, of course, because the central thing about their program is that their their readers should cultivate the stoic disposition and not be snowflakes, right. but they are such snowflakes. Right, <laughs> which I feel like is a long pattern in this kind of discourse. I mean, there's so much about this moment that feels really reminiscent of the early 90s culture wars and you know it is almost always the person shouting about how they're being silenced by political correctness um who is in fact trying to stop criticism of themselves you know i feel like uh there's this ironic way in which the free speech warriors are often the ones i mean as when jordan peterson decides to sue or threatens to sue kate mann a feminist critic who talked about his misogyny in a vox interview you know it's like all of a sudden the the hero of free speech uh is not so enthusiastic about it when it is used to criticize him. Just like Jonathan Chait uh, freaking out about totally. the, twi- the Twitter mobs that dared disagree with his speech that before the internet could go mostly unchecked. Totally. And it's very fun. I mean, the irony, which seems to still be lost on people like Chait, but of sort of being a, a well-paid pundit with a huge platform. I don't know how many followers he has, but, you know, gazillions of followers, however many it is, uh, it's sort of only a person who is used to speaking into respectfully hushed rooms could feel so very attacked when, like, underemployed leftist grad students are saying snarky things about his column on Twitter. You know, it's sort of like uh, the real indignation that people might speak back. And it's interesting. I mean, I think we're seeing this, too, around some of the legacy media reaction to Me Too. Uh, I've written about this elsewhere, like for logic, but uh, but I think in a lot of ways there's this um, this sense of, let's call them alt-centrists or right liberals <laughs> or whatever they are, but this, you know, people, the men who run these legacy institutions in many cases are sort of incredulous that these new platforms 
have broken their monopoly on discourse, that, you know, the women might actually be talking to each other in a Google Doc um, makes someone like Rick MacArthur very upset. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, so there's that, uh, I feel like I've gotten a little off topic, but that certainly this sense uh, that a, contr- a monopoly over reasonable discourse, a prerogative, a power to ar- be the arbiter of what counts as reasonable discourse has been somehow unsettled, shaken up by platforms and by the internet, I feel like is a common theme across these books. Uh, A few years ago when I was writing, I wrote a piece that was like a history of the idea of political correctness, also for The Guardian. And I remember doing all these searches in like big digitized databases of media. Um, And this is a very interesting thing to me, but the recent sort of like surge of complaints against political correctness starts right around the time of Black Lives Matter, like right in 2014, like late 2014, when there were those big protests, you know, after the cop who killed Eric Garner got off. And that sort of that moment is like precisely in these big databases when uses of the phrase political correctness in American media like spike up again. So anyway, I think it is a reaction to a perceived threat to power, which includes like power to control the discourse and decide who's reasonable. And I think also like, I don't know, I feel like we're seeing it again and again with the kind of alt-centrist right liberals who you were just summoning. And we should not forget Steven Pinker, a very important <laughs> reactionary. But, uh, but I think, what was I going to say? They're like, dismayed after decades of believing that the only people who disagreed with them were people who were either irredeemably racist and sexist or too stupid to know their own self-interest. You know, the sort of like, what's the matter with Kansas argument? Uh, This kind of pundit is having to deal with critics from the left. uh, And it makes them very uncomfortable. Are they also made uncomfortable by sharing a, the broad outlines of a basic argument with the conservative, right? I suspect they are. I mean, I think that pundits who came of age in the sort of W era, I don't know. I mean, I think, I, yes, I think that the suggestion that they are anything like the Trumpists uh, would be deeply disturbing to them. And yet so many of the patterns of sort of wounded masculine, you know, aggrieved masculinity were speaking just a week after that Gian Gomeshi article and the John O. Hockenberry article just went up. This pattern of like aggrieved masculinity, this claim that we are the real victims here, um, you know, we we white men, uh, is something they share in common, as is also the desire to reconstruct a certain kind of rational subjectivity uh, that in many ways, like we were talking about before, constructs itself in distinction to, to qualities perceived as, you know, racialized or gendered or whatever. So I think they have a lot of points uh, of common of, of commonality. They all sure hate political correctness and identity politics. It seems like it's maybe even like when does the term identity politics as a a slur first come about it's a great question and it was funny right before we talked i was like i should look that up because it's not exactly i mean political correctness is a term that basically no one ever uses to describe themselves um i feel like you know starting with the combahee river collective statement it's like identity politics is something that people use to describe something you know they identify with or support so it's not quite as extreme a case as political correctness uh, in that way, but I feel it also is mostly, mostly a slur. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not sure uh, when that, when that shift happens, or frankly, when, you know, the sort of George Wills of the world. I, it's funny reading the Mark Lula book, which also cites Combahee and calls them left Reaganites. It's like totally crazy. But, uh, 
But reading it, I was talking with a friend about it who was just like, where did they even find out about Combahee? Like, get that out of your mouth. I kind of want to know how they even found out about it. Well, Um, but by contrast, these two authors uh, do not cite Combahee River Collective for their definition of the term identity politics. They (laughs) cite a Brookings Institute scholar named Jonathan Rowell. Ralph, whoever that is, I don't, I don't know who Jonathan Ralph is. His last name means smoke. Predictably hilarious. Yeah, here um, we go. <laughs> so yeah, there are these common. Oh, actually, before I go there, so when does the term, when does the term political correctness then as a weapon first, first come about? It's really interesting, and it has a long history. Uh, I It basically starts to show up in American discourse in the early 90s. There's sort of scattered usages of it that are attested on the left, uh, usually as a sort of, um, or actually exclusively as a mocking, a somewhat self-mocking or ironic term. I'd say it seems close to the way in which some people now will sort of lightly deride themselves by calling themselves woke. My friend was saying when she was a kid growing up in a liberal uh, Boston suburban household that they had a joke PC Christmas carols album that her parents played. That was sort of the self-making fun of thing. Right. And it's totally like that. I remember when I was working on that that article, which has been a couple of years now. So I remember finding in lefty magazines, maybe even in the nation, like jokey ads for like a politically correct chair that was made with all like fair trade materials or something. Um, but it is never it's thought to enter the American lexicon in general through translations of the little red book in the 60s. Uh, Audre Lorde uses it to criticize uh, men in the black power movement for being insufficiently attentive to, to women and to feminist concerns. It becomes an extremely powerful topos in the early 90s culture war is this idea that campuses have been taken over by leftists and they're enforcing um, enforcing politically correct speech codes uh, and lest, you know, lest we think that this is not actually dangerous and harmful, this kind of claim. I was just looking for reasons of my current research project at the manifesto of Anders Breivik, the far right wing terrorist, who quotes at length this manual on political correctness that um, a free speech foundation think tank puts out in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, So anyway, it's this idea that like, leftists have secret and i also sorry now i'm just totally ranting but it's also like this is a form of conspiracy that literally goes back to mein kampf right like hitler talks about kultur bolshevismus cultural bolshevism and this idea that leftist intellectuals have sort of like infected the culture with their ideas secretly and the fact that you can't see any real sign of their power is just more evidence of how powerful they are um and these people and the alt-right love to cite herbert marcuse I know the Marcuse stuff is really wild, and there's a moment in the coddling of the American mind where they sort of rehearse these points about Marcuse, uh, and only because I'm sort of in this research project about the far right and their relationship to critical theory was I like, wait a minute, whoa, like that is very close to what Anders Breivik says, uh, which comes, uh, you know, which the the Norwegian terrorists who killed a bunch of children uh, in 2011, as well as other people in Oslo, uh, and it's, you know, very close to how Andrew's, uh, Andrew Breitbart writes about Marcuse in his memoir, uh, which is truly wild. I kind of commend some of its insane snippets to people. Um, but What do they credit Marcuse with? They credit Marcuse. So basically, there are different versions of this narrative that get propagated in different forums. But in very broad strokes, a sort of cultural Marxism conspiracy theory, which goes back to you know, proponents of this theory trace it back to the interwar period and to Lukács and Gramsci. Uh, 
the role of Marcuse is supposed to have been popularizing the more abstruse and academic ideas of thinkers like Theodore Adorno and making them accessible and actionable to the campus left. And I think, although this is rarely stated explicitly, although I have seen it stated explicitly, but not that often, that Marcuse was also, you know, he was Angela Davis's dissertation supervisor. He's sort of like at Berkeley during the uprisings of the 60s. But also part of it is um, they, they credit Marcuse with and Richard Spencer talks about this, by the way, like a lot of people on the far right talk about this, but uh, but they credit Marcuse with having sort of vulgarized and popularized for the 60s student left, this sort of pernicious Jewish cultural Marxist theory, um, and also given it, for instance, to uh, people behind and people in the black power movement and people behind the formation of like ethnic studies and women's studies. I feel like when you hear someone like Jordan Peterson go on a crazy rant where he's like, cultural Marxism, which is postmodernism, which is queer studies, which is feminism, and any academic is like, wait, what? Those are all totally different things. Um, but that it's, it's referring basically to this idea. Obviously, these, these two are making an argument that they say is against identity politics, but is just putting forward a different form of identity politics, which is a invisibilized one that they shroud in the, you know, in uh, the the guise of of reasonable neutrality and it's their identity politics. But do you think that there is a a critique to be made of certain prevailing versions of what has come to be known of identity politics, not what which is not in 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 my view how the Combahee River Collective defined it that is more that does tend to foreground things like recognition and representation and and downplay structure and political economy. What do you think? I think the short answer is yes. <laughs> I think there is uh, there is a critique to be made, and I feel like folks, you know, people like Wendy Brown have written on this brilliantly for uh, for decades. I think that there is, you know, there's this paradox of of identity politics, where on the one hand you're asking for recognition and restitution in the hopes that that should someday not be necessary. You know what I mean? And I think there are all these these paradoxes around it. And I think that certainly identity politics have been co-opted in cynical ways uh, by capitalism, by corporations, by corporate universities. Um, So I think that there's certainly a critique to be made uh, of the kind of identity politics uh, that says, you know, so long as we have a minority drone pilot killing children in Yemen or whatever it is, that that's fine. You know, I think that there's a certain critique of representationalism uh, that that is important and that the left has been doing. Uh, And I think, again, to be like a teeny bit charitable, uh, more charitable perhaps uh, than I usually feel to, to the coddling of the American Mind book, I think it's like there's no doubt that universities have sort of mobilized in some cases, uh, rather cynical forms of identity politics or um, have mobilized how to put it. It's, you know, there are all kinds of these, these gestures that Greg Lukianoff and John Haidt associate with safetyism that are not actually about improving the lives of marginalized students. They're just about protecting the university from liability. You know, I mean, I think there are all kinds of... And improving their, like, crit- PR. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I think there are all kinds of possible critiques uh, to make of of the forms that something calling itself identity politics has taken. Uh, at the same time, my understanding of the Combahee River Collective has also always been 
sort of closer to how Assad Haider described it in his recent book. I mean, sort of closer to this idea of emergent identity, an identity that one develops uh, sort of in conversation with one's own lived experience and in solidarity with other kinds of people. It's certainly not, you know, the way that these authors and many other authors describe it as if it was some kind of, you know, checklist of, of harms or vulnerabilities that you could check off and then say, okay, give me a gold star for every vulnerability or something. I mean, I feel like that's a caricature, but I certainly wouldn't uh, endorse that, that model of identity politics if it exists. My last question, and you touched on this earlier, is that this this book started out as a story in The Atlantic that went viral. The Atlantic has a very particular history in doing a certain type of work in alchemically laundering liberal right and conservative arguments into mainstream common sense. Like in the research I'm doing for my history of immigration politics, it is mm-hmm. remarkable the incredibly racist things that are printed in The Atlantic about immigrants mm-hmm. that would be associated purely with Trumpism today. But there they are in the pages of The Atlantic in the 1990s. What is it about the role that the Atlantic plays in like center-right, middle-brow political culture? It raises an an important question of like how far this kind of middle-brow country club liberal sort of like is from the the Trumpist or whatever, from the kind of far-right you know, anti-immigrant stuff you're seeing in the 90s, but it's like, I don't know, we have this political fiction that it's like only working class people and these sort of unwashed middle of the country zombie white working class people support Trump. But it's like, we know that's not true. It's like the the petite bourgeois, the rich people in poor places who support Trump. It's not true that it's like, and I don't know. So anyway, sorry, I'm just riffing, but there is something about how this kind of common sense this kind of right-leaning liberal common sense gets constructed where it does seem as if, you know, the ideas piece in a sort of middle-brow place like the New York Times or the Atlantic, that it consolidates it. And I wonder, and I feel like while reading The Coddling of the American Mind, I was like, if this is self-help, who is it for? And I ultimately was like, oh, it's for the dad who's like really upset that his kid came home from Wesleyan being like, you're racist, dad. You know, like it's like this... um this particular class of reader. And I think the casualness with which the book does not even mention dead or adjuncts to circle back to the beginning is like, it's for a world in which that would never be an issue. Like the entire social, and it's such a a closed world. It's a book sort of full of citations of friends. Because I think that there's also a kind of middle brownness that that speaks to a relatively privileged, probably mostly coastal, but a certain kind of audience. And in its imaginary, therefore, sort of like appeals to a kind of quote-unquote common sense. Uh, And that, you know, it's like everyone knows hookup culture is a disaster. Everyone knows that women are too picky and that's why they don't get married. Or everyone knows that these college students are going overboard. Perhaps it's the way in which that kind of middle-brow place uses and relies on the appeal to an assumed shared common sense uh, that makes them particularly inclined to be places that like launder, I don't know, launder these conservative opinions. I also think, I mean, the troubling, sorry, I'll stop going on and on, but like, I remember when everyone, when David Remnick was going to have Steve Bannon at the New Yorker Festival, whenever that was a while ago, and it's like, 
I think that we also have to consider the troubling idea that, like, maybe they don't disagree that much, you know? I mean, not to pick on Remnick specifically, but that it's like, you know, when, when what's-his-face, Rick MacArthur goes on the radio and it's just like, these Me Too women are, like, so full of it and or have, like, gone too far, and isn't it sad that I had to hire, fire my editor who just, like, you know, he just got drunk and groped one of his subordinates or whatever, that it's like maybe their views aren't that different from the view. You know, we've had this this idea that that liberal culture is so different, but maybe some of what we're seeing is that some of the values aren't that different. And I don't know. Think of the Iraq War. Think of how these publications got behind the Iraq War. Like, maybe that's not that new either, but we're just processing it in a different way in the Trump era. Well, Moira Weigel, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan Denver. (laughs) Moira Weigel is a writer and scholar currently at the Harvard Society of Fellows and a founding editor of Logic Magazine. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that it is only in an order of things in which there are no more classes and class antagonism that social evolutions will cease to be political revolutions. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends in either real life or social media about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig, and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help. (laughs) 